0: There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the hell is water? I'm Don Hall, and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast designed to see the water that surrounds us. And welcome to Season 3 of Peculiar Journeys. If you've been listening, the first season was 13 episodes of stories I already had in the can from me, from my dad, from my wife. Second season was an attempt to find stories of others to showcase, and I was mostly successful. This season will be split into two sections and on alternating weeks. Stories about my tattoos... And the history of WNEP theater in the 90s. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm also going to go back to a weekly broadcast. Every two weeks felt less, I don't know, vital in some ways and gave me too much time. And given this season is just me, I really don't have any excuses. So, all right. I have 10 tattoos thus far. All of them are on my arms. I got the first one in 2009 and got each one on my birthday. Um, Part of that was because once I got the first one, I wanted to get them all the time, and I thought I have to give myself some sort of a stopgap. So the stopgap was, I'll just get them on my birthday. Each story, each one, has a story, so I'm writing them out for you to hear, sort of like a skin travelogue of a section of my life. I grew up with my natural father's family covered in ink. Uh, I always kind of wanted one, but I never took the leap into skin art until I did in my 40s. Now the first one is on my left bicep, and it is simple text with a top and bottom bar. It says Dada East Vidada," Dada, which is loosely translated to Dada Is What Dada Does. It was 2008, the summer. I'd been married and divorced once before. Apparently, it was time for another. After a week of separation, when she went away with her family for a vacation that I opted out of, she had to choose. I want a divorce, she said. Not the choice I wanted, but the choice I half expected, the right choice, in hindsight. At that moment, I felt myself detach. Instead of exhorting her that she was choosing poorly, that I could change, that we could make it if we tried, I shut down the right hemisphere of my brain and focused on the pragmatics of divorce. First, there were the living arrangements. She wanted to continue cohabitation for at least a few more months until she could afford an apartment. I wanted her to leave that night. We discussed her staying on my insurance for at least through the end of the year. Her eyes started to well up, but I would not allow us to go there. Business first, because I feared that if I started crying, I might never stop, like a perpetually broken faucet attached to my face or a wound that would never stop bleeding. Part of the business of divorce for us was the business of theater. How to let the world know we were splitting, because for theater folk, it hasn't happened until it's been performed for an audience. I wrote a blog post announcing our dissolution. She proofread and edited it. She wrote an email to send out to her friends. I barely looked at it and told her to send it. In separate rooms, on separate computers, we both get publish and send. The play had been written, previewed, and presented to the world. As always, she was the director, I the producer, and the producer is all about the business. And I'm a fucking kick ass producer. By then my stronghold on my emotional flood was resolute, continued to remain detached for as long as I could. We talked about it as if we, we were simply just another day in our lives, and that it was unfortunate but probably necessary. The damn all almost broke when I realized how much I'd miss her, but I quickly switched it to predictions that I would become like a sitcom ex-husband, always dropping by with comedic situations for her to help me resolve. We joked about the reactions people would have and which friends might take sides. The laughter was bitter and cold, but better than releasing ourselves to the grief of a chapter coming to an end. After ten hours of this torture, she gathered up some of her things and left. We cried as I hugged her one last time as her partner. It was over. We had concluded our business, and the curtain call just a formality. I walked around the apartment in a daze. I made a pot of coffee. I smoked in the house. I got undressed and put on my bathrobe. I sat on the couch and stared. I don't know how long. I ended up at my place of business, in front of my computer in my office I found a song that broke my heart and put it on repeat Man listening to No Doubts Don't Speak over and over, smoking in a bathrobe, sums up a complete moment in time. And I finally let the wall of detachment down and chain smoked, drank coffee, and wept for what seemed like a thousand years. But it wasn't a thousand years. It was more like a day or two. My mother used to tell me that as one of the Irish tribe, I had three days, no matter how dire, awful, life-changing, three days to mourn or rage or weep. And then I had to pick myself up and get on with it. Not the most realistic approach and certainly the cause of not dealing with my feelings and stuffing them down into dark compartments in my brain, but it was effective. Eventually I packed up all her stuff and waited for her to pick it up. She never did. I played the Incredible Hulk video game on my PS2 endlessly. Joe and I wrote a show about his fiance dumping him and my getting divorced for Sketchfest that year. John Jughead Pearson directed it and it was both funny and heartbreaking and hopeful. I went home for Christmas alone, but I was never alone, and Mom, who always wanted to fight the dragons in my life, was at a loss to help fill the gaping hole in my life, but made the holiday a beautiful, bittersweet festivity nonetheless. The following February was my birthday, and Mom decided she was coming to Chicago to celebrate it with me, to stand firm with me in the city I had been so discarded in, to help. What do you want for your birthday? She asked. I I want a tattoo, I replied. A tattoo? Okay, I'll get one with you. Aesthetic attitude generated in part by the horrors of World War I and in part by a rejection of the accepted canons of morality and taste. I The anarchy. was an introductory bit from the WNEP theater production of Soiree Dada Blinda Easel Hops. All right, so first, a bit of context. Dada or Dadaism, was an art movement of the European avant-garde in the early 20th century, with early centers in Zurich, Switzerland, at the Cabaret Voltaire in 1916, New York Dada began uh, around 1915, and after 1920, Dada flourished in Paris. Developed in reaction to World War I, the Dada movement consisted of artists who rejected the logic, reason, and aestheticism of modern capitalist society, instead expressing nonsense irrationality, and sort of an anti-bourgeoisie protest in their works. The art of the movement spanned visual, literary, sound media. It included collage, sound poetry, cut-up writing of ARP and sculpture. Dadaist artists expressed their discontent with violence, war, and nationalism and maintained political affinities with the radical left. There's really no consensus on the origin of the movement's name. Uh, The common story is that the Austrian artist Richard Halsenbeck plunged a knife at random into a dictionary where it landed on Dada, which is a colloquial French term for a hobby horse. Others suggest that maybe the first words of a child, Dada, you know, making it sort of absurd and that appealed. Still others speculate that the word might have just been chosen to evoke a similar meaning or no meaning at all in any language reflecting the movement's internationalism. The roots of Dada lie in that pre-war avant-garde. The term anti-art, a precursor to data, was coined by Marcel Duchamp around 1913 to characterize works which challenge accepted definitions of art. Cubism and the development of uh, collage and abstract art would inform the movement's detachment from the constraints of reality and convention. Uh, The work of French poets, Italian futurists, and German expressionists would influence Dada's rejection of the tight correlation between words and meaning Works such as Uber Roy in 1896 by Alfred Jerry and uh, the Ballet Parade by Satie would also be characterized as proto-Dadaist works. Now, the Dadaist movements principles were first collected in Hugo Ball's Dada Manifesto in 1916, the Dadaist movement included public gatherings, demonstration, publication of art and literary journals, uh, just a lot of coverage of art, politics and culture, um, just all this kind of stuff. Key figures included uh, to me the the, the main in my opinion, the main two, the mother and father of Dada, Hugo Ball, Tristan Zara. It also include Hans Arp, uh, Johans Bader, uh, Holsenbeck, George Grosch. There's a lot of them. Max Ernst was a, a Dadaist, Hans Richter. The movement influenced pretty much Everything. Um, If you've watched any, if you watch the Animaniacs, you can say that yeah, there are there there are Dada influences in that. Uh, It influenced surrealism, pop art, Fluxus. Dada was a very small blip of artistic genius and explosion that ended up affecting everything that came after. Now, I was a fan of Dada before I came to Chicago, but it took Joe Janes and his understudying for Clown Prickus and Will Burst and creator Joel Jeske's suggestion that we co-produce an evening of Dada performance that kind of cemented my unbridled love for it. Clown was a darkly comic spoof of clowning from a, a fake. German perspective. Jasky and his troupe even lied to the press. A group of four Chicago comedians, they sent out press releases that they were actually for German clowns from a fictional clowning institute, and the press bought it. They saw it the opening night, lauded it, praised it, and then it was discovered that they were all full of shit and that it was all a lie, and that made some critics uh, pretty upset. It really was. It was the only theater show I've ever seen nine times in a row. Clown was like the perfect evening of theater for me. It was unpredictable, goofy, violent, fucked with the audience, and was completely fun. One of the, as an example, one bit of the clowns did was to get various audience members to sign, you'd sign a liability waiver to volunteer. And so you'd sit, if you signed one of these, you'd sit throughout the entire show kind of ang- anxious that, they, that these crazy dark clowns were going to pull you up on stage. So that was part of it, was that you probably had 10, 12 people just kind of on pins and needles throughout the show. At one point, they'd just pick one, and they'd only ever pick just one. So you ended up having the rest of people that sat there worried the whole show. So they pull that volunteer on stage, put them in a raincoat, goggles, a clown nose, and then bungee cord them to a chair on stage. And then they just leave them there for the remainder of the show, ignoring them. they do the show. This person would just sit there. So show concludes, they do their curtain call, the lights would go up, and it was like, okay, we're, we're getting ready to leave. And it was like, it seemed like the volunteer was dressed and tied up for no reason, which would be funny on its own. But then there would be a huge clang, and all four clowns to music would run out and pelt the volunteer with eggs, water balloons, and mashed potatoes. It was the fucking greatest show I ever saw in my life. <laughs> Alright, Joe's time with Clown inspired him to write his brilliant Dada play Metaluna and the Amazing Science of the Mind Review, which we produced in 96, and then again at Red Orchid Theater in 2012. And with Jesky, we produced an open run at both the Turnaround Theater and later at the Trapdoor Theater of what we called Soiree Dada. Now, Sware Dada was just a, it was just a night of Dada performance, kind of utilizing the Jesky version of Dada. He wore clown white, mismatched vaudeville suits, and really terrible German accents. There were always four. And with the non nonstop nonsense and bold experimentation language, movement, and comedy. I kind of fell in love with this very Americanized version of the art form. He had created a hierarchy where there was almost a Marx Brothers hierarchy of there was a one, and that was the Uber data, and then there was the middle management data, and then there was sort of the intellectual data, and then there was the insane data. These were utilized, these all kind of came from clown, and that's kind of, it came into the data world. I delved deep into, into the archives of Tristan Zara and Hugh Ball, the manifestos, the ancient recordings of Dada poetry, collage, a lot of ARP-inspired work. I decided pretty early that I was not a Dada performer. In the original run at the Turnaround Theater, I was the light guy, and we put me in white face, and I was just a floating head, and my goal was to do all the lights and sound and simply never move which was fun, but I just decided that I was I was much more interested in being more like a Dada architect. So I decided after a long run of undirected Soir Datas, they were just an ensemble, and they just kind of put the show together. And Joel had left to be in the actual circus. He joined Ringling Brothers. Jen, the aforementioned second ex-wife, became the Uber Dada, the ringleader of the, the, the four. Joe ended up leaving to be the artistic director of the ill-fated second city Detroit. So I, I kind of got to a point where I went, all right, it's time. For me to direct a Suare Dada. I decided then to update our model. Most of the shows were either productions of the original Dada as pieces or new pieces created in that vein. Um, I wanted to introduce the Iraq war, sex, gender issues, civil rights issues. I really wanted to use the data for the now, you know, really update it. And it worked. It actually worked really well. Dada and Neuvelthoffen ran at the Trapdoor Theater for several months to incredible critical appraisal, and we even took it to New York and performed it at a run for a run at (music) PS122. What do you want for your birthday, she asked. (sighs) I want a tattoo, I replied. A tattoo? Okay. I'll get one with you. Now, keeping in mind that, as far as I was concerned, this was the only tattoo I'd ever have, I had no idea what I wanted to have inked in my skin forever. I looked online at a series of flash tattoos, some common tattoos, and images I thought might in- be interesting. I kept coming up with the concept that these things didn't really mean anything and would fade in time, leaving the equivalent of an old girlfriend's name on there. After a short while, and we'd already determined to go to Tattoo Tattoo on North Avenue, so the clock was ticking, it occurred to me that I lived so much of my life in words, written, spoken, performed, and otherwise, that I wanted it to be a phrase. I wanted text, something that represented this moment in time so I could remember it clearly, something that perhaps I'd I'd learned along the way. And then it hit me. Dada. My life had become the embrace of chaos of the meaninglessness of conventional thought. It felt like I was trapped in a tornado or floating through whitewater rapids. Dada is about the destruction of the illusions of security and comfort we cling to and building something new from the cracked and broken pieces. Dada is about burning it all down and painting your face with the ash and going out to build something unheard of. Dada is about transforming what is into what can be. I was divorced from Jen now I was also divorced from my longtime artistic partner And the artistic director of my theater company Because Jen was both of those things And in the process of people choosing sides Because that's how it always works I'd been divorced from a whole section of people Who chose to be on her side Whatever the hell that meant Dada said that I shouldn't be the victim of this destruction, but the instigator, rather than become the pieces of a broken set of ideals and hopes, become the architect who takes the pieces and crafts out a new life. Dada is what Dada does. I designed it myself. I didn't really understand that tattooists were artists and could just kind of come up with something that looked a little bit less like I got it in prison. The phrase Dada East Vidada" in typewriter font with a black band on top and bottom. We went to North Avenue and mom got a tattoo on her ankle. I think it was a Chinese symbol for hope. And I had my heavy phrase tattooed on my left outer bicep. I thought it would hurt, but it, it really felt like it was just rubbing steel wool over and over the same patch of skin. It was raw, but it was not entirely unpleasant. To this day, even though my arms are covered with phrases from each year since, it's this sentiment, rebuilding upon the ashes of a destroyed dream, that keeps me fresh for the fight. The embrace of change keeps me ready to go. Henry Rollins once said, I believe that one defines oneself by reinvention, to not be like your parents, to not be like your friends, to be yourself, to cut yourself out of stone. Reinvention is data. To reinvent, one must discard that which is and embrace the chaos of creation. Anything less is a stupor laden stagnation. Dada East vidada. Thanks, Mom. And that's the tale of the first of 10 tattoos next week. uh, I'm going to shift focus, but not gears. And I have some more of the saga of WNEP theater long before the Dada days, as we flourished sort of in the Chicago of the 1990s. See you next week. And thanks for listening. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast produced, voiced, and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in Wicker Park, Chicago. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or catch it on SoundCloud or download it from DonHallChicago.com. You can assist Peculiar Journeys financially, if you can, by becoming a VIP patron on www.patreon.com slash Peculiar Journeys.